All righty. Welcome back. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It is time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, we have to apologize because we are missing one co-host. And Doc, stop making those faces. Uh, he had He had family stuff to take care of, you know, as you do uh, when you have a social life. Uh, so it's just uh, three different Army veterans being nerdy together, because that counts you, Kevin. So speaking of Mr. Kevin, the one, the only, the legendary Kevin Eikenberry, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? All right. Thanks for having me on, guys. Um, so I'm <laughs> Kevin Eikenberry. I write military science fiction primarily. Uh, I am a retired Army officer. I'm uh, retired as a lieutenant colonel after almost 24 years. I was an armor officer in the first part of my career and then transitioned to space operations. And so I did space operations for the last third of my career. And then I still work with space every day. I'm an instructor for the uh, new U.S. Space Force out here in Colorado. So I have written, I think now, 13 or 14 different books in the Four Horsemen universe and uh, other universes. So uh, it's, it's been kind of an interesting ride as being a writer, but uh, I wouldn't trade it. Okay. So now, dear listener, we get to tell you, or viewer, because we're on the YouTubes now, we get to tell you how we first met them. So I actually found Kevin through the Four Horsemen series. Uh, he's been in a few of the anthologies and uh, some standalone novels in that universe, like you mentioned, and we were in one of the anthologies together. So yep, we did yep. some of the marketing stuff, and uh, the rest is history. Now, what I really want to hear is how you, Doc, met him. I wonder, no, is it booze? Or something else nefarious that you do at your weird conventions? Booze. Duh. Okay. That's how you meet all the cool people? For the most part. I meet a I lot mean, of people. It um, works for you. It, it does seem to work for me. Um, I'm trying to remember if who it was that introduced us. And I don't really remember. It was one of those, I think we were at it in the Liberty Con Con Suite, maybe I was tending bar and it was just, this is Kevin and I can yeah. and he's starting to write and, da, 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 and yeah, cool. I think that's right. I know it was a Liberty Con. I don't remember if it was in the con suite or like out on the floor someplace or, or something, but yeah, I, I know it was Liberty Con where we met. It was Liberty Con. I'm fairly certain it was either the vendors hall or a room party of yeah. sorts, which the con suite is basically a room party because we have an open bar in there. Right. So, so this, just because I recently filed all the taxes about a week or two ago, it's got me thinking. So since you use the booze and you're using, like meeting people professionally for work that way, does this mean alcohol is now a tax deductible a thing? Asking for a friend. It depends. <laughs> Obviously, hashtag this is not legal advice. I'm just got me thinking out loud. Like, can I deduct my booze? As a tax I, I think you can you can deduct and uh, this is uh, no no uh, no attribution here, but I think you can deduct meals and expenses like that if you're traveling. So if you have your writing business set up, so, you can do it that way. So you know, like if Jr. ever left the house or had a face, and uh, <laughs> it's a tragic accident. So I've got a uh, a face for radio and a voice for print. So it's probably for the best. <laughs> All right, Doc, you get to ask him the religion question, and we get to see if he gets to stick around. Of course he gets to stick around. Kevin would never give the wrong answer. 
Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? What's your religion? Um, I was a child of Star Wars. You know, I saw the first one in the theater and about 12 times in the summer of 77. So I was I was always a child of Star Wars, but I came to Star Trek after that. And then I actually, I, I'll be perfectly honest, I missed Firefly when it was on TV. Totally missed it. Most people did. You know, if you took like a semester off of watching TV, got grounded like I did, you might have missed it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it was. I think it was on while I was at space camp, and I was I was just too busy with work uh, to watch much TV there. But um, then I, I like Firefly too, so I kind of like all three. But yeah, I was I was a child of Star Wars growing up. So now I know you write sci-fi, so we'll definitely be focusing a lot on the sci-fi. But how about your fantasy religion, Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, or Harry Potter? None of the above. Okay, so what is it then? Um, the the last fantasy series that I that I really read and enjoyed, and I have not read much fantasy in the last probably twenty years. Uh, David Eddings, the the Bulgaria, okay. the Tamuli, uh, those those stories were really really pretty fantastic. So I, uh, I dug those as well. Yeah, I just I I haven't been into fantasy for a while, and it's you know it's nothing personal against the genre or anything. I just it's just not me. Well, if it doesn't fit with what you're doing too, like. Because when you're doing all the kind of crazy things you've been doing, you start running out of time in the day to actually read. Yeah, you do. <laughs> so. You do. <laughs> so, well, you kind of answered our next one because we were going to say, which was your first love? So I'm betting you're going to say sci-fi? Yeah. yeah so what, what is it that you love, though, about the sci-fi genre? I think uh, I remember reading someplace and I think it may have been uh, Ray Bradbury that said that science fiction was the art of the possible. And I really, that that's always kind of resonated with me because when you, when you write science fiction, you're, you're looking at things that in some ways that could happen, things that uh, you hope could happen or things that may never happen that you kind of are dreaming what they could be. So I, I've always liked it from the standpoint that it was, kind of grounded in the real world in our experience, but then looking forward and seeing what was possible. Okay. So what was your first memory of engaging in sci-fi as a genre? Was it going to the theaters to see Star Wars? Was it reading a book or playing games? What was it? I would say it would probably be seeing Star Wars, but then immediately thereafter, I remember being uh, in my dad's office. My dad at the time was an associate professor of biology and on his shelf, he had some Isaac Asimov books, like The Caves of Steel and iRobot and a couple of things. And I remember looking at those. And, of course, you know, trying to read iRobot at like eight years old is just a no, it's a non-starter. Uh, but I just remember being exposed to, to science fiction at that, at that point and knowing that there were other things out there. And it just, you know, as the Star Wars mania kind of took over in the late 70s and early 80s, it just kind of blossomed for me. Okay. So the Star Wars was great. Those three movies were amazing. I really wish they'd do more in that universe. It's just a shame that they abandoned it. Um, yeah, you know, I've, after 1982, whatever it was, just all kind of went downhill. <laughs> so how did your love of science fiction as a genre and science in general, since you mentioned you worked at Space Camp, uh, transition into you writing stories? I'll be the first person to tell you I was not one of those, those folks that said at the age of seven that they were going to be a writer. Uh, that's just wasn't me. Uh, writing was never something that was on my radar. I was told in high school I was a good writer. I was told again in college I was a good writer, but I did nothing with that. You know, I, I did an English minor in my bachelor's program because I thought I was going to go to law school and I wanted to be able to write good legal briefs. And <laughs> I can totally uh, see you as a lawyer, though. 
No, it's it's kind of it, when well, I went off to a lot of course, around you, but oh, no, no, no. <laughs> law was not going to be it. I'm glad I came to that realization before I even tried to go. Uh, so uh, it just was something that I I'd, I'd been good at, I guess, for a long time. And uh, while I was at space camp, we actually kind of came together and, and wrote some vignettes and situations for our campers. Uh, the first part of my time at space camp, I was at Aviation Challenge, which was the uh, part of the program that was based on high performance jet fighter pilot training, essentially. And so that was a lot of fun to, to do that. And then when I transitioned over space camp, we did a little bit more with some other stuff, but I kind of filed that away. Until uh, 2003, I was mobilized as a reservist, and I was <clears throat> spending time at the uh, glorious Fort Bliss, which is not blissful at all, for those <laughs> of you that aren't familiar with it. Hey, and, it is a lot better than it was back in 2003. Yeah. I was there when they were doing all the building. Yeah, 2003 was was pretty awful. Um, <laughs> but I, I've put things together and I have some of those vignettes, and I thought that was a novel. It will never, ever come out of the trunk. You'll never see it. But <clears throat> it probably kind of fostered a, an idea that I should write something at some point. But it was at least five years, maybe six years after that, that I had the idea uh, for the first book that I ever tried to write, which was my book runs in the family. Okay. That's a solid and well thought out answer. It's almost like you've done this before. So, <laughs> no. <laughs> so many authors let their own real life experiences influence the stories they tell. So was there any specific one like formidable moment for you that really shaped the kind of stories you tell? Uh, I think there's been a bunch. Um, uh, my novel Sleeper Protocol really has a lot of me in it, right? Because it it starts with a, an amnesiac protagonist waking up on the shore of Circular Key in, in Australia, just down the way from the Sydney Opera House. And when I started writing that, I, I drew back on my own experiences from having been there when I was a kid. I was, you know, 18 years old when I went, so 17, 17 years old when I went. And that experience stuck with me so that the imagery and the, the kind of the feeling, the sensory perceptions and whatnot were all there. So it was it was kind of an easy thing to do. And then as that novel progresses, uh, the protagonist goes through a lot of places where I've been and have had experiences. So a lot of those things come through. And even as I'm writing The Four Horsemen Universe and writing a, a female protagonist, Jessica Francis, there's things that I did that I'm transmitting kind of through her or through the characters around her. So your personal experiences really give you the opportunity to provide a lot of depth for your characters and really get into the emotional connection that they have with whatever they're dealing with. Okay. So speaking of, uh, you mentioned earlier that you were in the U S army. So we ask all authors who are also military veterans this question, but how do you feel like your time in the big green media affects the stories you tell? Uh, it's, it's always there, you know, especially writing military sci-fi. There, there's so much of it that, that we have gone through and the, the training that we've done and, you know, the, the iterations of, you know, strategic training lanes and that sort of stuff that you just, it stays with you. Uh, whether it's the people that you dealt with and how everybody works with different situations or reacts to different stimuli or how a weapon systems work or, or what it was like to jump out of an airplane, all of those things kind of come back and you're able to, to draw on those experiences a little bit. So yeah, the, my time in the army and, and being involved with that is, has certainly played a role in my writing. Do you ever draw on people you knew when you were in the army? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I have, I have created uh, characters who were conglomerations of folks. I've, I've used uh, some of my friends' names uh, and I've, in some cases, used some of their stories. You know, in my career, when I transitioned over to space operations, I did not 
deploy or, or have any of the, the combat experience that a lot of my peers had. And so I would, I draw on a, a couple of my friends very much for some of those experiences, just to make sure that I'm telling the, the story the right way and kind of telling the truth of what they were dealing with. Okay. So the final question is we've talked about how the story, like the time in the military affects the stories you tell, but does it affect the way you engage content as a end user? So does it affect the stories you read, the movies you watch? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's a, there's a, of course, and you guys have, have probably had this happen too, where you watch things and you're like, no, that's not how that works. Or, uh, you know, somebody does a, does a procedure, you know, like what, how to clear a rifle. And you're like, no, that's not how that works. Uh, you, you kind of always have a critical mind for, for things like that. And it, it makes it really hard to suspend your disbelief. Well, it's really hard to turn it off because it catches you in odd moments. Yeah, it, it really does. And it, it, it makes it in some cases, uh, you know, based on your own experiences, it makes it very hard for you to, to just kind of drop it and walk away. I was telling somebody recently that, you know, they were talking about the, the new series for all mankind on Apple TV. And I have tried to watch it. And I got through the I was watching the first episode. And there's a scene where all the astronauts go out to party and, and kind of blow off steam after Leonov lands on the moon. And that scene where the, all of them in the bar just completely turned me off. I've, I've, through my time at space camp, I met a, a pretty good majority of the moonwalkers, and that's not what those guys were. <laughs> you know, they were not. They, they they did not have that air about them. And watching that scene was just really hard for me to to, to go ahead and suspend the disbelief and keep going. Uh, so I'm going to get back and try it again, but it's just one of those things where your experience in real life. When you see something that that completely contradicts what you're used to or what you're assuming will be there, it completely throws you out of it. Yeah. The other part of that is recognizing the limitations of your own experience, because I I knew people who would write, well, this is absolutely the way it was in the military, because that's the way it was for them. Not recognizing that, you know, if they had one job, that it might not have been that way for someone in another job in another theater. Yeah. I found that also with being particularly a female in the military when oh, yeah. I read some of these things. Cause sometimes they're written by people who just because of the time they were in, didn't serve with women or at all in some cases or not much. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's like, you know, okay. Like uh, there was one person who handed me something and they're like, here, read this. And I'm like, okay, yeah, no, this is wrong. Well, yeah. based on, and I'm like, okay, but you got out of the military 30 years ago. This is wrong. This is how, if you're, and it's set in current day. So let me give you some current day. Mm -hmm. So there can be some of those. Oh yeah. I mean, I I look at it when I went to officer basic course in 92, when we arrived, you know, with the the company first sergeant comes out, it's all a bunch of lieutenants and you've got the first sergeant that comes out and he says, welcome to one of the only two branches left that don't, that don't have women in them. And I remember thinking at that point, you know, that there was a part of my of my 21 year old brain that was like, that's cool. And there was a part of my brain going, I know a lot of women that would be a lot better than some of the guys around me at this job. <laughs> and that, you know, armor and, and infantry now both have uh, have women performing. I've got uh, a very good friend of mine who is uh, a young lieutenant over in Germany. She's kicking ass and taking names in an armor platoon. So uh, it's it's uh, it's good things. It's nice to see the evolution of it, but. And you know, uh, armor is almost combat arms, so that's a step up. <laughs> uh, says the infantry guy. It's all right. It's okay. And hey, I was a Cav Scout too, so you might as well just pile Ooh. that on there too. Yeah, that's almost like you were in the Air Force. 
<laughs> he is kind of wearing very close to Air Force Blue. I did notice that. <laughs> so, but I always liked hanging. The coolest sergeant major in my brigade was, uh, one was infantry and one was a, a Cav Scout. So, I'm always nice to the Cav Scouts, even even if he did wake me up at five o'clock in the morning with stupid ideas. So, so hey, I you, want you to do this when you come into work. Can I go back to sleep? <laughs> so, so, did you uh, did you do the death before dismount mantra? <laughs> that was actually, uh, I know it was not my, my class motto at OBC was death on tracks, but yeah, death before dismount was a big thing. Still is. It still is. I, I remember when I was going through ROTC, a friend of mine who was, I think, two years ahead of me and also went armor. He said the, the only reason he was going to go be an armor so he could drive by the infantry guys and we'd be like waving. <laughs> uh. So, hey, they do have air conditioning on those. But the best, you know, the best part is, though. If you're a medic, medical vehicles are deadlined if the air conditioning doesn't work. Yep. Yeah. There's got to be some perk somewhere in there. We got oh. air conditioning just by walking extra fast so the the hot sun would breeze on us just a little bit quicker. <sighs> yeah. That's why you ate so many donuts, right? <laughs> um, so transitioning into the fan angle of things. Chairs one day going to get me. Um, have you had any cool fan art or had a fan cosplay one of your characters yet? I have had a fan cosplay Jessica Francis uh, at Dragon Con a couple years ago. And it was funny because I was at the, the Bard's Tower booth and I uh, talking with other authors and selling books to people that come by. And, and she walks up and walks right in front of me, puts her hand on her hip and says, hi. And I was like, hi, how are you? I'm just completely clueless. And she, she reaches down and she picks up the, the cover of Honor the Threat and she put, she holds up the book. She goes, I, rem no, I remember this. I remember everybody. I wasn't there, but I remember everybody teasing you and you got no end of shit for the rest of con about no, it. No, I, I did not. And it was it was completely well-deserved because I was absolutely flabbergasted. I am not one who was uh, ever at a loss for words for very long. And she completely stunned the hell out of me for like 10 minutes. <laughs> So, so what does the average attendee spend on books when they go to this convention? Because it always like, oh, they're buying this book and that book. Like, how do you not go bankrupt? I don't know because I use cash. Yeah, I that's I I use cash, and I uh, I leave my card in my room hotel rooms hotel safe because yeah. if I still want it when I've gone in all the way back to my hotel room, then I must really want it. So. Yeah, I've I've come home with a suitcase full of books, so I, <laughs> that's the way it works. Yeah, no, I, I come home with. Uh, th there's a long-standing joke in my family that it's how how good was the con? I don't know how many books did Suska bring home. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I went to a not con this past year and still came home with books. <laughs> <laughs> I it's not my fault. It's the way it works. They She's just find action. me and love me. And I love them back. You so, can quit anytime, right? Nobody likes a quitter. Don't play that <laughs> game. Uh, <laughs> so have you had anybody ask for your autograph away from a convention or a book signing event? No, not at that. Not at this point. Um I, I have seen the book in the wild, which is kind of fun. I, I saw Sleeper Protocol in the wild. Uh, Where were you? I, I was in the in an airport. Okay. And uh, it was after a show, and I didn't remember actually selling the book to that particular fan. So <laughs> I just 
kind of sat back and, you know, had that moment. I was in the process of getting to a gate. And I was like, that was my book. Holy shit. That was my book. And that was it. So. Hey, it works. It counts. It does. It does. It's, it's, uh, I'll tell you, it's an incredibly humbling experience. It really is. Cause you get, you get scared then you get excited. Then you're like, they bought my book and it, it really, it's, it sits on you pretty hard. Well, at least you didn't like stealth stalk them or something. No. Because some authors go, oh, yeah, no, it's great because I'll ask them and I'll say nasty things about the book and then they have to defend it and it's great. <laughs> <clears throat> what that, what I thought about doing with that particular book, and I've done it when people have picked it up if I'm at a booth or whatever else because mm-hmm. it's got my picture on the back cover. And I'll just walk up and point at the book and go, that guy's a hack. And then they turn over and be like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to be very confident to do that. You um, do. So what is the weirdest or funniest interaction you've had with a fan since you started writing? I don't think I've had anything that was really weird. I'll tell you one that was, that was exceptionally gratifying was at the, at the last dragon con. Mm-hmm. Um, I've gotten to know uh, Cheryl and Kenyon through a couple of the signing events and she invited me and Quincy Allen and a couple of authors uh, to be part of the, the ball that she throws every year. And she has little tables for authors and whatnot. And so I'm, I've got my table set up. I'm there with Quincy. We're having a good time. A couple of the, the Four Horsemen fans have come by. And a gentleman walks up with his wife. And as soon as he starts talking, I realize he's from Australia. And he says, well, you know, my wife and I were here for Dragon Con. And one of the things we wanted to do were meet all of the Four Horsemen authors, including you. And man, the guys come from half the world away, and I'm one of the people that he wants to meet. It was just, and, and just an incredible experience. See, this is why Dragon Con's awesome. So, <laughs> I'm trying to convince JR that Dragon Con's awesome, and he keeps telling me it only has 800 people. Um, he's bad at math. What? I said 801. 801. You really need to work on your math. Very nice. JR, in in a way of trying to encourage you to go to Dragon Con, I I resisted it for a long time. And finally, Casey Azell talked me into it. And she said, you need to come to this because it's really, it's the Super Bowl of cons. And she wasn't wrong. It's really pretty fantastic. So uh, can you give us the highlight reel of your body of works before we dig into this specific book today? Uh, so uh, the first series I wrote were, were the uh, Protocol War series. There's two books in that, Sleeper Protocol and Vendetta Protocol. Um, long story behind that particular series. I hope to finish it one day. Uh, there's uh, some things that I need to work through with a publisher and uh, that sort of stuff. We'll just leave it there. Um, I got picked up for the Four Horsemen universe uh, on the uh, recommendation of my friend Chuck Gannon. Uh, Chuck was in uh, the process of talking to Chris Kennedy and Mark Wandry about being the uh, forward writer for the first anthology of Fistful of Credits. And he asked them if they'd heard of me and neither one of them said no, said yes. So I was like, well, here's this guy you need to get in touch with. And I think he'd be a good fit. And so I wrote a story for that anthology sight unseen. And uh, Chris emailed me about three hours after I turned it in and said, can you write a book? And then that turned into a freaky fast reader. Yeah, he is. He is. But yeah, I was that turned into being a, a core author in the universe. And yeah, now I've got what seven or eight novels in, in that universe alone. Uh, I've, I've worked on a couple of other books and, and series. I have a series called The Imprint War, which uh, has the books runs in the family and dereliction of duty in it. Uh, I turned around and I wrote a tribute to one of my literary heroes, Elmore Leonard. 
by writing a, an Elmer Leonard style crime novel in space called Super Sync, which deals with a couple of rival crews going after a, a high altitude asset that's uh, been long decommissioned and worth a lot of money. Um, so that's kind of where the, the body of work is right now, uh, working on the, the next Four Horsemen Universe book. And then I'm also working on a new universe project with uh, Chris Kennedy. So we've got a lot of things uh, still working. So I'm going to totally pigeonhole you at Fantasy now. Why? <laughs> Secrets. So, but we're here to talk about Redacted Affairs, which is part of the Rise of the Peacemaker series. Yes. Which I do find it funny an armor officer writing um, something that is very akin to a police novel, MPs. So you had to know it was coming. Oh, absolutely. And it was kind of funny that, you know, people that know me and are like, how are you, how did you get started writing the peacemakers? <laughs> You're not, a, you don't have a background in law enforcement or anything along those lines. No, how did I see that because they're not exactly law enforcement mm -hmm. either. They're kind of like, we will make you get along. That's, yeah, that's how I always think of it as, and remember it. So it's not peace keepers as peacemakers they make you get along exactly and so. anytime somebody says peacekeeper to me they owe me a beer so see so, i never buy you beer how'd you come up with the idea for the series with psychedelics ouija board overindulging in bad gumbo um it was oh, actually okay. at, at fantasy a couple years ago kevin severson and i had talked about wanting to write a book together and uh, it was something where I was in the process of talking with Chris and Mark about I wanted to do a parallel series. So we have the main storyline of the Force Universe, and I wanted to kind of tell a parallel story alongside that for a period of time to really kind of widen out the peacemakers and what they do and, and what the overall conflicts that are going on in the universe were. And Kevin and I sat down and it, we ended up just howling with laughter at the, the concept that we'd come up with with these these two peacemakers who are uh, partners and they're complete opposites. They're like the odd couple uh, in, in a lot of ways. And then having them going through this, this particular mission really kind of fed into where I wanted to take the rise of the peacemakers and telling that parallel story. And, and Kevin and I had a blast so much so that, you know, we've done a, a follow-up to it and we're going to do a, at least one more, if not more books with those characters. So Kevin squared had a lot of fun. Got it. We did. We did. And, and it's, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you're taller and thin and Kevin's shorter and rounder. Yeah. And we write very differently too. So it's, it's yeah. been fun for people that know us to, to, to think about how we write because I'm, I tend to plot things out and try to get a plan at least in my head before I sit down and Kevin and writes completely off the seat of his pants. So we had to kind of mesh those styles together. And then Kevin writes humor very well. And I've never felt that that was something I did well until redacted affairs, because there were people that would come up to us and be like, Oh, and they would look at, at Steverson and go, I loved that joke. And he'd be like, he wrote that. <laughs> and it would just, it stunned people. I can very wrote that. Yeah. I wrote that. You joke. Can be you know? funny, but you have a dry humor. Too, I do. Which I think the, when Kevin's with you, when other Kevin's with you, it, it balances. Mm -hmm. So, but I grew up with a very dry humor. I, I grew up thinking, yes, prime minister was the best humor on earth. So <laughs> I grew up with a dry humor. <laughs> and when their powers combined, um, you get of, greatness. There we go. Powers activate. <laughs> That's right. So speaking of the let's, before we dive into the story itself, let's talk about the cover. So where's, what's the story of this, uh, this cover? How, how did it come to be? What's the, the journey to creation? 
So I'm, I'm actually pretty fortunate as an author in that all of the covers that I've been involved with the Four Horsemen universe have come from sketches that I've made. And as uh, Kevin and I went through and talked about the story, we knew that this was going to be at a, at a kind of a pivotal moment when you know, the, the two peacemakers have been kind of undercover on this mission. And in the process of this, this uh, revolt that's going on, on on this mining colony, they have to reveal themselves. And so that you see uh, Gyral is the character's name, who is a Besquith, uh, holding up his Peacemaker badge and basically roaring at the crowd to heed what he's telling them to do. And so it's, it's a pretty uh, good pivotal moment of, of the, the book itself. And you know, most authors don't have a chance to, to, to really get involved with the cover design process. And I, I love the fact that Chris takes my chicken scratches and gets with an, uh, with an artist and actually puts it together. And they, they, they do such a great job. So do you cover why he's missing his eye? He's actually not missing his eye. That's part of his disguise. And so that's, that's well covered in the, the book as well. That's okay. cool. Just... I like All right. And that looks. Again, I think it's great. So I also think that he looks like a puppy. <laughs> not the artsy fartsy one. The artsy fartsy one's doing not artsy fartsy things. So <laughs> he's not getting stabbed by his wife and that's what he's doing. That yeah, is that's, key. No, that's important. That is important. I like not being stabbed. So moving on to the book itself, what would your 30-second elevator pitch be for Redacted Affairs? So this is uh, two young peacemakers who have a very different view of how the universe should operate. Uh, they've been accused of not being serious by the, their instructors as they went through the Peacemaker Academy. And upon their graduation, they're given the opportunity to conduct a mission at the request of the Guildmaster to investigate something that's going on that really kind of stinks in a way that nobody can investigate without really getting into. So they go on this mission completely undercover. Uh, they make friends in unusual places, including a, a pair of push talls uh, who are named Ricky and Keaton, who are actually aliens that were raised by a, a human father on earth. Um, and uh, because he's from uh, North Georgia, they have a very considerable accents <laughs> and mannerisms uh, and which th that provides a, a whole other whole other line of the story as well. So it's it's two young peacemakers on a mission that's going to have big ramifications and nobody thinks that they're going to be able to pull it off. And so what makes Redacted Affairs and the Peacemaker series special in the crowded field of science fiction? Um, I think one of the things that I've tried to do with, and especially with the, the storyline with Jessica Francis, is that making friends in unusual places. Because we have the Four Horsemen universe where, the, where humanity was drawn into the Galactic Union after uh, basically an attack. And the attacking uh, aliens were the Minshaw. They were the ones in the universe that looked like the, the praying mantises. And one of the things that I've tried to do with my series and my books have actually had those characters, though that race essentially play a, an integral role with Jessica and really become friends with her. So you're seeing that the universe isn't as bad as you think it is, that there's, there's those good people, if you will, all around you. And it's a matter of looking for them and bringing them into the fold. Okay. Now it's Doc's turn to wow you with her conversational prowess. <laughs> so what are the, what tropes, this is my favorite tropalicious question. What tropes do you think you hit best? <laughs> See, Kevin thinks it's funny. He's used to mind making up words. No, tro tropism is a good word. Um, th there's a lot. Good grief. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, th th you can almost say that there's a trope for everything, you know, with, 
when I wrote Sleeper Protocol, that that first published book, I was really worried because the trope was the the, the amnesiac protagonist, right? Character wakes up, doesn't know who they are, anything along those lines. I was terrified about that, but I realized pretty quick with the the folks that I had read the book and and when the early reviews came in that it doesn't matter. So tropes are something that that the reader kind of latches onto as things that are familiar. So I've I've done the the female or the female protagonist pretty well. I've done the the leader uh, learning the ropes of leadership, if you will, uh, pretty well. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot that have, have have found their way into the books, and it's it's familiar from being a, a fan of science fiction myself. And you just you you recognize that it could be a trope, and you you hope you do the best you can to tell it in a different manner. Yeah, tropes aren't bad. I I like tropalicious. I keep telling people I want to do a panel calling it tropalicious, and they're like, "No, you can't do that." I, I think it'd be a great idea. So, but what genre or subgenres do you think that this book particularly fits into? Like, is cop a genre subgenre? You you probably could call it that. I mean, it's 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 certainly got the the military sci fi aspect to it, but. In this particular case, it is kind of like a buddy cop dynamic, right? You know, and that's the the title for the books. You know, Redacted Affairs plays off of in, Infernal Affairs. You know, a classic cop movie. Then mm-hmm. the next one, Redacted Vice, plays off of Miami Vice. The third book that Kevin and I will hopefully write maybe later this year or early next year will actually be Redacted Weapon. So it it has this theme <laughs> that we've kind of embraced. So that the buddy cop genre in, in science fiction totally works for us. So. I think that's awesome because you don't see the buddy cop trope in science fiction very often. No, and, and it, especially taking a couple of characters, you know, you've got Jairal who is this massive figure who actually is, I'm not going to say that he's timid, but he's polite. He's very self-conscious and self-aware. And his partner is a, a Zupardi, essentially a, an anthropomorphic weasel who has no fear is uh, just kind of a badass and and has kind of a strange sense of humor. So they're, they have this very different physical caricature, but then they also have a different approach to things and a different, they're, they're, they're very different at the core emotional level, which is a lot of fun to, to get into and explore. So who's your main character then? So it's Jairol and Larth are the, the two main characters. Okay. So do you want to tell us a little bit about them or you think? Sure. Uh, so Jairol is a Besquith. And so that's kind of, a, the, we kind of put it as more like a werewolf, not necessarily kind of the, the dogish that, that they look like on the, this particular cover, but he's, he's massive compared to most of the, of the, the others in his race. And it's actually, we find out pretty early on that he was different. He was the runt of the litter and was fed primarily uh, fish proteins. So he's grown up without having to fight for uh, any type of food or you know rations or anything along those lines. He has a, almost an unlimited food supply. So he grows very, very big. And he takes being a peacemaker very seriously. He is, like I said, he's very self-conscious, very self-aware of what he's doing. He wants to be the, the best possible peacemaker he could be. Larth on the other side is, you know, he's fearless, but he's he's a bit of a trickster, a, a prankster. And he pulls Jairal into a lot of things over the course of their friendship where Jairal goes because he is his friend and he realizes that he needs to kind of be there for Larth in case something goes wrong, knowing full well that if anything went wrong with him, that Larth would be there for him as well. So yeah, we all have that friend. And if you don't know who that friend is, then that you are probably that friend. Exactly. And this particular case, the, these two are so close that it's, it. like I said, it's so much fun for Kevin and I to write them uh, because 
it really gives us an opportunity to play off of, of both of our strengths as, as writers, which is a great. <laughs> Sorry. I have bored doc. <laughs> no, I, I just get up very early, but um, so who would you say your secondary characters are in this? Uh, in this, in this book, you've got a couple of different ones. So we have uh, four humans that have been stranded on this moon uh, and they're led by a woman by the name of Cora McCoy, who we actually end up determining that she is related to the the father of the McCoys, the the actual the push tall twins. So there's a, a oh, familial connection. I we're going with Hatfield and McCoy. Yes. Yes, we are. So <laughs> there's a Hatfield that appears in Redacted Vice, and will play a major role in where things go from there on. So. So does your story have any bad guys in it without obviously giving any spoilers away? It does. So the rise of the peacemakers is actually uh, following a, a potential adversary to the entire peacemaker guild, whose name is Kresakai, who is an equerry. He's one of the, the horse-like uh, aliens. And excuse me, he was an enforcer with the peacemaker guild and then was charged with capital murder and uh, conspiracy and basically drummed out of the peacemaker guild and imprisoned. And so uh, he's first introduced uh, by being referred to in the in the Jessica Francis books as far as having escaped from pri uh, from prison, and now nobody knows exactly where he is and what he's doing. But he's got all his his hands, if you will, and all these things. He's kind of got all these machinations going on as far as different things in the universe. In this particular case, he has a crew on this moon that are uh, they've taken over what they thought was a defunct di uh, red diamond mine, mine and. They're gathering the dust and uh, forging red diamonds as far as being a way to pay for some of the things that he is wanting to do. So it definitely ties in with, with who he is and what he's wanting to do kind of in a loose way. We don't see him really in the book, but his uh, his prints there are there, if you for lack of a better term. OK, his hoof prints are all everywhere. Got it. So speaking. speaking of characters, so if yours ever met you in a back alley, given how <clears throat> Uh, mean you've been to them throughout the course of the book. How do you see that interaction playing out? <laughs> that is such a great question. Um, I think it would depend on the characters. Some of them would probably buy me a beer and some would probably want to punch me in the face, you know, because uh, <laughs> with your characters, you, you want them to be believable. You want them to resonate with the, the audience. Um, in Hollywood, they call it the mirror effect, right? So if you see a, a person on screen smiling, you want to have the audience smiling as well. So you want to have, you want to create that emotional resonance for the, the reader. And that means typically that you take your characters through high points and you take them through low points. And so your characters might not think it was a high point. They might think it was a low point. And so that's where I think some of them would probably want to punch me in the face. <laughs> but uh, it's a matter of Try to put yourself in their shoes and just telling the truth of, of their situation and see where things take where things take you. So, are all of the aliens in the Four Horsemen universe anthropomorphic like that? No, there's there's some that are not. <clears throat> yeah, okay. there's some that are not. All right, and so finally, uh, what can you tell us about the universe? In many series, the worlds where the story is told is as much a character as the protagonist or antagonist. So uh, can you give us a hint of what can we, we can expect if uh, people aren't familiar with the Four Horsemen universe? Well, the Four Horsemen universe technically starts with the book uh, Cavalier, Cartwright's Cavaliers by Mark Wandry. 
And Mark and Chris wrote the first four books, uh, and then they detail the the four horsemen, if you will, that survived the the first uh, of the human missions to uh, off of Earth back in the day. So about a hundred years prior to where the universe actually is now, and then. It's grown on to, uh, there's over 60 books in the series if you count Rise of the Peacemakers and all the other anthologies and the different storylines that have been, been introduced. Um, I don't think any of us thought it was going to grow as big as it has in the time that it has. Uh, I don't think any of us thought it was going to generate its own fan organization, the Mercenary Guild, which is kind of like uh, the, the Royal Manticore Navy of uh, David Weber's fandom. Um, it's, it's really kind of surprising, I think for all of us, but it, it's, it's fantastic. You're dealing with stories, not just of, of humans going out to kill aliens and get paid, but you're also seeing now that the interactions of humans on very different levels in the universe, yes, there's threats that everybody has to deal with. And there's a lot of, uh, fighting and combat, both in space and on the ground, but you're really kind of now learning more about the human dynamic and where this is going to take the galactic union going forward, which really is the, it's kind of the quintessential science fiction story, how humans are adapting to this future and leaving an impact on it. So for those who are new and listening, how many, when you say 60 books, you don't, in, in the amount of time, how roughly how much time has it been since now, from then to now. That's so I think that Cartwright's Cavaliers came out about four years ago. Because okay. Peace, Peacemaker's been out a little over three years. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's probably probably right at the, the four-year mark. So okay. I just uh, wanted yeah. to give people who are listening a sense of perspective. Yeah, it, it really has blown up. And uh, it I will tell you from a writing perspective, it, it's a fun universe to write in. Not just that I've created some of these aspects and it makes it easier for me. It's it's being able to work with other authors. And one of the things that we've done from the, the very beginning, uh, Chris Kennedy always leaves spots in an anthology for new and upcoming writers. So if there's someone who comes in, they decide that they want to write a story and they get it done and submit it, Chris will consider it for publication. And then as other authors have come up and said, this really sounds interesting. Chris is, is pretty welcoming. Tell me a story. What do you want to, what do you want to see? And that's how the universe has grown in the way that it has, because we have the main storyline that Chris and Mark and, you know, John Osborne and Casey Azell and Marisa Wolf and I kind of curate. But then you've got the Peacemaker storyline that's gone off and Casey and Marisa have done a Depic storyline that's gone off. And John is telling a story of Bourne's Berserkers that goes off. So there's all kinds of different ways that this works. And uh, like the 1632 series is very similar. It's almost bedtime. Ah, oh. <laughs> so because as and Eric Flint did some of that with the early gazettes in in some cases he took those and took some of the characters and made them canon. So I think it's neat when you can incorporate more. Absolutely, and even in the course of writing a book, you know, there I was going through that with uh, the 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 last book with Redacted Vice. Uh, Kevin and I had a had a whole idea of what we were going to do and we realized that we had a link that was missing and we needed to be able to, to reach out and do something different. So I got on messenger, typed in a message to Casey. Can I do this with the Depic? And she's like, absolutely. And we worked it together and, and we've always kind of done that with each other so that if anybody's like, if anybody is using the Depic, the, the cat assassins, they go through Casey and Marisa, they have to kind of be the, the approval authority for that. If somebody's working with the peacemakers, they have to come through me to just kind of make sure that they, excuse me, understand the, the, the basics of the story and basics of the, the organization and how things work. Well, and we're kind of getting into some of that, that internal consistency 
So, but can you tell us a bit of what kind uh, of what you're skipping one? No, Hold not. that thought. Yes, you are. No, so, not. yes, you are. Hold that you thought. You can just rearrange it. This is important. We do it in order. This is we count in the infantry. I don't know what you did in the medical field. You just make it up as we you adapt. go. I guess. That's what we do in the medical field. We, we adapt by blowing things up. I, I'm told I can't do that anymore. So uh, redacted affairs is clearly part of the series. We know because it says so on Amazon. And Doc would know that too if she knew how to count because there are seven books and I don't know if she goes that high. Uh, so is their story done or do you think there's going to be more? Uh, there will be more. Um, Rise of the Peacemakers will probably end at 10 books uh, just based off of some of the things that we're doing with the universe. But the story that's gone on with uh, Gyro and Larth from the, the two redacted books will continue. And then the other books in the series are actually that most of them tie into what's going on with the Peacemakers from different points of view. And all of that's going to come to a head with uh, the next book that I'll be writing uh, in the universe myself, which is called Harbinger. Now, is that going to be a Peacemaker book as well? Yes. So yep. you see yourself writing anything but Peacemakers in this world? Um, you know, it's we've actually had some conversations, and if uh, the stars align with my writing schedule next year, uh, Mark Wandry and I have a project that we're going to try to work on. In the Four Horsemen? In the Four Horsemen that, that would not necessarily be Peacemaker-centric. Cool. All right, now you can talk all your wordy things. <laughs> Oi. This from the author. Yeah. Uh, okay, so every universe has its own internal consistent rules. So tell us a bit about the rules of science and technology that keep this internally consistent. Um, from the very beginning, Mark and Chris came out with uh, essentially a universe Bible of things that things to do and things not to do. And it, while it's given us a, a lot of leeway, it's also been very clear about certain things. Uh, so keeping those rules intact is, has been a good thing. Then when you break down, like into we get into rules of engagement, when uh, you've got two forces that are going after one another, there's certain aspects of that that are also governed by the, the, the laws of the galactic union. Like for example, you cannot bomb something from an altitude of uh, 10 miles or higher. So you have to be down in the lower atmosphere to actually be able to conduct that type of operation. So those things have their, their own uh, aspects of the universe. When you start looking at the other technologies, you know, the technology that we have in the Four Horsemen universe is not that unfamiliar to folks. Uh, powered armor, you know, powered armor has a long history in science fiction, you know, looking at starship troopers and, and other storylines where humans wearing mechanical suits and conducting warfare was the, the main draw. You know, you're looking at uh, in the physics of the universe, there's no artificial gravity. So when the ships are in the process of transiting uh, hyperspace or they're not maneuvering, there's no external uh, application of gravity. So there's things like that that you have to pull into play. And you know, every once in a while that will trip someone up because we have a tendency in our heads to be reminded in books if, if we don't see something or, or understand exactly what's going on, we picture it like Star Trek where there's perfect gravity, everything is fine. And that's not the case. So you have to be creative in how you put things into the storyline about, you know, if they were drinking a bulb of uh, beverage, they just leave it hanging in space rather than worrying about setting it down on a table or something. So those types of interactions have to be done. And it has to we have to have a, a whole lot of uh, care, if you will, and attention to detail to make sure those things happen. So technology, like I said, not that much different than that you, what you've read from science fiction. It's just it's. It's how we apply it and we maintain that internal consistency, which is huge. So 
of all the science and technology in the book, which is the one that you'd want to bring home for daily use? <laughs> as much as I would like to say that the Casper, the combat assault suit personal, which I think would be really cool. Um, the one of the things that, that I've worked with in the, the, the books is a, as a program called Lucille, who is, she kind of looks like and sounds like an artificial intelligence interface of some type. And she's kind of not, and I can't go for any further than that before I start spoiling upcoming books. But Lucille would be one of those pieces of technology I would I would love to have because she would make my life so much easier <laughs> from a time management perspective. I could get her to do the things that I need to do. <laughs> okay, so our next one is which one would you which technology if you brought it home you would totally abuse it? That would probably be the Casper. <laughs> Traffic. Uh, you know, it, it can it can you know make big jumps. It has big weapon systems. Yeah, you know, guy cuts you off in traffic. I can turn on the magnetic accelerator cannon. You know, we we'd all like to do that at some point in time, right? Oh, just but, think about rearranging things in your yard, like oh, playground equipment. Easy to move. Now. Oh yeah, no no problem whatsoever. You know, like I had to had to deal some uh, car maintenance this past weekend. So I heard you don't need a jack. Just lift up the car with the Casper. That'd be perfect. I could totally do that. So yeah, I I'll totally take do an that operator one. level. <laughs> yeah, totally do it. <laughs> so we've covered that there's aliens in it. So how do you go about creating an alien in the Four Horsemen universe? Like, have you created one for the Four Horsemen universe? Yeah, okay. we did. Uh, so, and, how did you go about it? Did you let nature inspire? Did you um, drink too much whiskey? <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know exactly where it came from. Uh, but Kevin and I kind of uh, applied a, a little bit of a devious sense of humor as we were developing this, this race. They're called Mitterals. And they basically are, are like parrots, very colorful. They're they're very very bird-like, but in this particular case, they talk like Foghorn Leghorn from Looney Tunes. <laughs> <laughs> and that was definitely Kevin. Kevin. It, 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 Kevin Kevin was was the primary mover of this, and and I just kind of jumped on because I thought two things: one, it would be hilarious, and two, it would drive people crazy in a good way. So <laughs> we had, we had a tremendous amount of fun creating, creating those guys. I um, wish I'd seen Wandry's face. We imagine that Mark would have been like, Oh God. <laughs> when he read it. <laughs> and I don't, you know, think I don't think he has a good, as, as good a sense of humor as, as Chris and you guys on that. And Chris, Chris, I think Chris, I think chuckled and had a good laugh about it. And you know, I think Mark is kind of warm to it. But you know, we've had other authors who have created uh, different races in the universe, and Kevin and I just had a little bit of fun with it. <laughs> it certainly sets them apart. It it does. Jr., are you still there? Yep. Oh. Exactly. <laughs> Boy, I said, boy, you should your shoelaces. I say your shoelaces are untied, boy. Yeah. Oh, oh that's my horn Langhorn. All right. Oh. So stop sharing. I'm sorry. I just couldn't help myself. <laughs> so the um, clearly, you know, we're we're at this for about an hour. So the in interview is winding down. 
Uh, but before we wrap this up, was there anything about Redacted Affairs and the Rise of the Peacemaker series that we didn't ask that you want to tell us before we move on? Um, one of the things that's come up with some of, some of our fans has been that they they only want to follow the main storyline, that they don't necessarily like following like the Depic storyline or the Peacemaker storyline or these different things that we've tried to tell. And in this particular time, for this interview and for, for any time I get at that question anymore, if you're not reading those other books, you're going to miss a couple of things that are going to be happening later this year, uh, probably around this summer, that are going to be massive. Because all of these things have been tied together. We've done the legwork and the brain work to, to make them all come together. And they're going to come together in a couple of very, very specific points that will really set off where the, the universe is going to go after this. And so this has been a, a, a multi-year project with all of us to kind of put things together and get it where it needs to go. And it's, it's all going to come to a head, which is a lot of fun. So the ultimate planning right? <laughs> project yeah it really was and then actually the, at the last fantasy we had a, a dinner where the the six of us core authors you know went to went to dinner and sat down and just talked for about three hours with all the different things that we were doing and all of those little threads have been kept and then with some of our other authors who have come in with other books they've come in and said i want to tell the story and we say well that's great can you do this for me and then you put in that little piece of story that also ties back to the the rest of it. And all of them kind of come together, which is a, it's a tremendous amount of fun to do. And it, like I said, it really sets us up for where we're going with the universe in the near future. Okay. So you also mentioned that you're going to be writing a series outside the Four Horsemen to uh, sort of stretch your creative muscles and go in a different direction. So is there is there anything you could spill about that one since we got a little bit of time? So sure. Um, there's I, I'm going to try to hopefully finish that uh, third Protocol War book this year too. But uh, the universe I'm working on with Chris Kennedy has a very kind of uh, Pacific Rim, uh, Robotech kind of uh, feel to it. I giant movies. Giant uh, uh, mechs essentially fighting aliens. Uh, the first book is written. Um, it's called The Last Stand. It's uh, the first book of Guardian Covenant. And then I'm working on uh, right now, if you could see my board in the office, I've got the, the plot for the second book that's uh, about 25,000 words into uh, working on that. It's, it's uh, tentatively called Vortex Stingray. So, yeah, so we're going to have uh, a lot of fun with th this series going forward as, as far as humans losing control of the Earth to these aliens, uh, being whisked, whisked away to deal with other problems, but then hopefully coming back to reclaim their planet in the end. So was this inspired by Sharknado with a title like that? <laughs> um, <clears throat> no. <laughs> did, it, go ahead, Siska. Oh, I was going to say, did you see that they finally settled the Robotech lawsuit? I did, uh, which is a, a huge uh, a huge step forward for a lot of things. I've, Macross Plus is one of my favorite movies and miniseries of, of uh, all time. It's, it's just such a, a well-told story. Um, I, I will say how you feel about Macross is a defining characteristic, I think, about people. I've only met one person who absolutely hated it, and they weren't worth keeping. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's kind of funny because you know I, I like Macross, especially Macross Plus. The older Robotex, I, I didn't really get into, but because the the and again, I, just because I'm I'm such a story focused writer, when I started to watch the, the other the other movies and the other the shows you started to see an emotional tangent that was brought in to the stories. It wasn't just, Hey, we got to go kill the bad guys. It became stories about the characters themselves and how they were adapting and changing to things over time. 
and the the movie Macross Plus. I mean, it, it's a definitive love triangle movie. Oh with, yeah, with four different sides on it, and it's so well done. Uh, it's it it just was a, a classic bit of storytelling. So I'm I'm thrilled that they've uh, settled those lawsuits, and maybe we'll see more of those uh, great stories coming out soon. Because you have, since he, he was so efficient in asking his question or answering his questions, we do have a few more minutes, Doc, if you have anything you want to add before we wrap this well, up. Well, one of the things I was going to add for some of our listeners who may be new to Four Horsemen, where would be a good place to start? Because 60 books sounds incredibly overwhelming mm-hmm. for a reader, particularly if you don't have a lot of time. I know some of the books are available in audiobook, but I don't think all 60 are. They're not yet. They're they're in the process. So, um, like I said, the the, the initial series starts with Cart- Cartwright's Cavaliers, um, but the first anthology, uh, A Fistful of Credits, is uh, was a project that was designed to widen out the universe. So Chris and Mark had written the four the first four books from the Human Mercenary Company perspective for the mm-hmm. each of the four horsemen, and then this anthology broadens out the universe to start telling other stories. That's where the the first appearance of Jessica Francis is in the Peacemaker stories. So that's a jumping off point for those. The the Depic first appear in that anthology with Casey's story. So though th- that anthology kind of provided a, an opportunity for three or four different storylines to really jump out. So that's um, a good place if you're if you're not familiar or you don't know which storyline you want to really follow mm-hmm. to start reading. Absolutely. And then once you're, once you're following that, then uh, Chris on the Chris Kennedy publishing website has the, the reading order and the reading list. So if you are picking up the, the story from the very first book and you want to go after all 60, there's a, a methodology and how to do that uh, and follow the story along. So you could actually read them in order if you wanted to, uh, or it breaks out again, how those different storylines uh, follow through. So there's ways to follow that too. I know I'm like the horrible fan. I actually enjoyed this. I've, from what I have read, I've enjoyed the side stories more than the main storyline. And you know, but, I'll, I'll be honest, I do. I have too. Um, I'm not. It's no knock against the main storyline, but having an interest in at least on my side of things in being able to widen out the universe and tell the tell the bigger stories, that to me is is the real draw of the universe. Uh, as a writer, is I can take this character. I mean, and, and I'll be honest, Jessica was uh, a side character. She was a throwaway. She she appeared in the story to provide more conflict for the main character I created. And she's now kind of become this thing that I have to, you know, I had to create her. I had to build her backstory. I had to build her story going forward. But then out of that, all of her interactions have now had a wider place in the universe. So, so go ahead. Did she end up, so is it one of those times where like the Felicity Smoke character on Arrow they brought her in and they made her more of a character because fans really loved her. Or is it that she kind of came up and smacked you around and said, no, 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 the story is really me. This It's kind of both. Uh, <laughs> when I, when I turned in the story, when Chris emailed me back and said, can I write a book? He said, can you write it about this female peacemaker? That's, that's a character that I think the the fans will really like. And, and he was right. Chris is, is, has a, Oh yeah, no, she's pretty much, I think the biggest human character that I hear named the men the most and you know it's it's been fun for me to to create her and yeah she kind of slapped me around and it was funny i had a longtime friend of mine uh from writing asked me said you know how are you writing this this character you know because guys typically don't write female characters very well and you're really you're really doing this in a, in a very very strong manner and i told him i said 
it's very simple. I have two kids, two daughters, and I don't want them in a couple of years to come up to me and <laughs> with the book in hand and go, dad, what the hell? <laughs> I, I want it to be something that, that they looked up to the character and they say, you know, here's this, this strong, confident character who knows what she wants and knows how to get it, but is not uh, afraid to be human, which is fun. Unless she isn't human, in which case it's a whole nother discussion. Yeah, that, that, I, I promise you she's human. <laughs> Spoiler. So the, the one thing that I had the most trouble with with the Four Horsemen is there were just so many alien races to keep track of. And it almost felt like if you didn't have a scorecard, you couldn't, you just couldn't do it. And so is there somewhere like the, a fan Wikipedia for people who feel like, man, there's just so much. And then all these weird races that all have names that sound like, the same that you send people to? <laughs> yes, there is actually is a wiki page. Uh, it's been uh, under work for a long time. I know that the, we've got a group of volunteers that are working on the, the entries for it. Uh, that information, I think you can get there from Chris Kennedy's page as well, as far as, far as how to find the wiki. Um, there's a, a Facebook group on uh, for the, the Four Horsemen universe that's called the Mercenary Guild that uh, certainly gives an opportunity for fans to interact with all the authors and ask questions and share spoilers and, and talk about the books and stuff. So those options are out there too. Well, in the board game, it had some information on it. Um, yep. The, the board, yep. The board game's fairly new. Uh, it, was, it was a Kickstarter that was done a couple years ago and it's got more information in it. And we're looking at uh, some other stuff here soon, maybe another Kickstarter for an RPG. That one. <laughs> yeah, that one. I've got one. I've got one back here too. I just yeah, mine's still in the shrink wrap because nobody wants to play board games with me here. <laughs> we have to fix that. So, but and you will be at Fantasy and then Dragon Con this year, right? Yes, Fantasy and Dragon Con, and then I am the writing workshop instructor at FinCon in Dallas, Texas, in September as well. So and you then, are going to get out. There are ways to get out and see you possibly in person. Yes. Yep. After the, the last year, I think we all need to get out and see each other. Yes. And remember why fandom is fun. Exactly. All right. I'm going to throw up on the screen for all you people that are curious about this fantasy convention he's talking about. If you're on the East Coast and you want to show up, can you tell them a little bit about the dates and times? Uh, yeah, it is the, oh gosh. May 21st through 21st 23rd. And it's in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina. And I'll be there. I'll be there too. Yay. So, and we'll have, and other people who we've had on the podcast, like Larry and, uh, and uh, Chuck. Yep. We'll be Larry, there. Chuck, Dave Butler are, are the, the three main guests. And of course, Chris Kennedy, Mark Wandry, David Weber will be there. Uh, a whole host of four horsemen authors. Um, they just, uh, Back in March, uh, what you're seeing on the website that's been pulled up uh, with uh, the restrictions easing in North Carolina, they were able to open up, I think, another 100 slots for the, the con itself, which is uh, fantastic. So there's still some openings. Yay. Well, all right. We've kept you long enough. So uh, I will link to the Fantasy uh, website for Fantasy Convention. And um, do you have any if uh, that you can get me offline? Can you get me the links to all the Four Horsemen stuff? And we'll throw those in as well. Sure. If fans we'll want to check that out. Yeah, and no then problem. Where can uh, listeners and or viewers find you? Uh, I have a, a Facebook author page, which is just author Kevin Eikenberry. Uh, my website is kevineikenberry.com. 
I have a mailing list there with a newsletter I send out every month that gives us uh, some news and uh, ideas of things that are going forward for me. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle there is at the writer Ike. Uh, I don't do much with Twitter these days, but uh, I am still there. If you want to look at look there and find me. <coughs> That's pretty much about it for how to, to get with me on social media. Okay. Uh, that keeps it simple. And all of those will be in the show notes, people. So just check it out when you, uh, wherever you're listening. Uh, and it'll be there for you. You can find us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters, tech and tech blades. Anchor.fm backslash blasters, tech and tech blades. We are also on Twitter at SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Sometimes we even answer it. And Cisco will keep dancing if I keep talking like this. We have a Facebook group, which is facebook.com backslash blasters and blades podcast, where all of the shenanigans happen. You can support us on buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Be sure to put in the comment section that it's for the podcast. Or you can also support us directly on the Anchor FM website if you feel so compelled to help keep the lights on or keep Seska and Nick Garber intoxicated or me with coffee because uh, someone's got to drive this ship. Uh, and, and that's that's going to be it. So, Doc, are you ready to bring us home or are you still dancing? I am not dancing. I am here. Uh, so thank you for spending your precious time with us. For the absentee, hopefully, whole stabbing free Nick Garber, J.R. Hanley, I'm Seska. This was the Blasters and Blade podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, all the things that go boom, and picking on Jr. As you do. <laughs> That's because I've got a face for radio, a voice for print.